All right, there's orange puffy guy who's the first in line after Kyle to pay. <laughs> That's good. Yep, I saw. Nobody's cutting you. All right, I think we have gotten everybody. Man, it's kind of like getting my kids to come in from a playground. It's like, ooh, I know it's disappointing, you guys. We can pay after the meeting. All right, thank you guys for finding your seats. Um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Melissa. I'm on staff with Chi Alpha. I am so excited for fall retreat this weekend. Is anybody else excited? Okay, that's awesome. Um, my first fall retreat as a freshman in 2006 um, was life. You had to have known that, Braden. Anyways, my first fall retreat as a freshman back whenever that was, um, was just so life-changing. And I got to say that, like, looking back on college, yes, after so many years, that was for you, Braden, um, like, investing in Chi Alpha and in all the opportunities to grow in my faith, like, core and spring break outreach and discipleship classes we haven't even told you about yet, all these great things, that was the best part of college for me, looking back. The degree is great, you know, check the box and everything. Um, but, like, that's what really changed my life and made my life. So just a pro tip. And so much so that I've kind of never left. <laughs> um, I wrote LOL in my notes. So I'm like, I don't know how you do that when you're preaching. <laughs> but um, after earning my degree in community health at Western and doing the Chi Alpha internship to prepare for my career, I was planning on being a missionary overseas. Um, and I did the internship to prepare for all of that. And then God just directed me to campus ministry. And I have loved working here with Chi Alpha at Central for the last 13 years. Um, I met my husband, Tony, at Western. We've been married 11 years. Man, let me tell you, having experienced, like, less than ideal relationships in the past, I'm not going to look, but has anybody else experienced less than ideal relationships in the past? It is so worth it to do the patient, intentional, wisdom-guided work of learning to date and marry well. Tony is so great and so nerdy, and I just love getting to grow our marriage alongside this Kyle for family. Speaking of family, we also have two kids um, it's amused me how, like, every week so far, our speaker has been a parent. That's never happened before, like, for five of us to, like, all have kids. I think I'm the last one this quarter, unless anybody has any news that I am not, haven't heard yet. Um, not naming names, but I'm just saying, I think I'm the last one this quarter. Um, but it's, it's funny, because our, our staff team, so many of us have, stop looking at Tim. Don't ask Shana. <laughs> he is up next, but don't look at Tim, and don't ask Shana. I thought that that was slide under the radar. It did not. But anyways, um, yeah, it's so awesome that our staff, we've like, a lot of us have been friends since we were single and just like married without kids, you know, those awesome like movie nights and like late night game nights and stuff back when we had like energy. Um, and now we get the joy of raising our energetic kids in campus ministry, which is a really joyful life. A lot of you guys know our kids love college students so much. Um, our two kids, Annabelle is four. She is somehow our girly girl who loves princesses and dresses and jewelry and accessorizing. This is just, we're watching the Sounders game, and she just comes down, and she's like, Mama, is I beautiful? <laughs> yes, you're very perfectly dressed for the Sounders game. Um, that's great. Um, yeah, she's so hilarious, and she says that she doesn't like Frozen that much, but she also talks about Elsa and Anna every single day, so make of that what you will. Um, our son Tyler is six. He's in first grade, and just to poll the audience, does anybody know what his hobbies are? Just shout them out. If you said Pokemon or Mario, you are correct. Um, maybe not Digimon yet, but I'm sure that's just, you know, by Christmas. Um, also, Smash Bros, he, like, made his own little Nintendo Switch when he was in timeout one time. And he's, like, he makes us listen to, like, the Life Light song every single day. Um, and he loves Link and Zelda. He has a joke about Pizza Hut and that Link 
wants to eat a pizza because he always like, when he climbs. Anyways, you might have to play to know that. Anyways, so that's really exciting to have a nerd in training. Speaking of exciting, let's get those Bibles passed out. Um, if you'd like a Bible tonight just to borrow or for keepsies forever, just raise your hand. That's an international Bible Mio sign, um, and it's our gift to you. Hey, I just want to kind of introduce our series of Matthew up to this point. If you guys have been here every week, you've probably heard a, a summary kind of like this every week. But I'm going to do it again because every single time at Chi Alpha, I meet people for the first time here. And I'm so glad that you guys have, have been coming every single week. Um, and for new people, I just don't want you guys to be like, who's Matthew? So I'm just going to tell you. Um, so we are going through one of the books in the Bible that's called Matthew. And it was written by a dude named, any guesses? That is an excellent guest from like two people who, who said that. <laughs> Jeremy is maybe in one of the extra biblical texts, but we'll get to that in biblical literacy class maybe. Um, but yeah, Matthew was one of Jesus' dudes. He was a, a, what eyewitness of Jesus' life and ministry. He spent like nearly every hour of every day with Jesus for his three years of ministry on this earth. And he thoroughly researched everything he writes down in this testimony. Like he would like die for the truth that he wrote down. Like this is like, he took it so seriously to, to carefully check everything and, and be integrity like full. That's not a word. I kind of was making that up. You know, he like really took this seriously is what I'm trying to say. Um, our first couple messages this quarter, Brandon and Taylor taught us that Matthew is writing this account to a largely Jewish audience. That's kind of the audience he has in his mind. He's trying to answer this question. Is Jesus the Messiah they've been waiting for for centuries? Is he the one had, that had been promised throughout history with hundreds of specific prophecies about what he would be like, where he'd be born, what he would do, all of that? Is Jesus that, that long-awaited Messiah? And the chapters in Matthew we've covered up to tonight, up to this point, We've seen incredible evidence that Jesus is, in fact, the promised king, but he wasn't the kind of Messiah or king or God that fit people's expectations. As the son of God, I often say he's God in a bod. He came to this earth to show us God's character, his kingdom, his ways. Um, but it was so different from what people on that earth, on this earth, I'll just say earth, you know, a little while ago. Um, it was so different from what people expected or imagined. Even now that we're fast-forwarded 2,000 years from those days, um, and, and that different culture, different time of the people that Jesus was born into and raised with and ministered to, our culture today is still really challenged by a lot of God's countercultural kingdom values, right? So in the chapters of Matthew we covered just the last few weeks, Meredith showed us how Jesus subverted a lot of the mainstream cultural and religious norms and worldviews through his inaugural message as king through the Sermon on the Mount. That was a really long sentence, but she did. Um, in Brandon's message a couple weeks ago, we saw Jesus challenge so many of the things that we tend to find security and safety in. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he challenge the things that we find safety in or security in? Well, because he graciously knows that those things are flimsy and fallible. And unlike our buddy Rick Astley, they're going to give us up and let us down. It's true. That just happened. I didn't think it was going to be that fun, but anyways. Um, and last week, you guys, we learned from Taylor that Jesus' kingdom is quite upside down from what we're used to. This king, he taught us, is born to us in a feeding trough. He's like born in a dirty barn. He pursues us. He loves us in the midst of our mess. What other God is like that? What other king is like that? Jesus' kingdom sees and values the little ones, like the hobbitses. I just talked to us about last week. Also, in case you guys didn't know, we upload all of our messages to our podcast. So you can search XA Central if you want to check a message that you missed or just review it. Um, you can search xacentral.com or nope, xacentral in podcast land. 
I obviously don't listen to podcasts, but everybody else does. So I'm just, hopefully that gives you enough. Anyways, we're going to move on. <laughs> Ask Braden um, or Taylor. They listen to podcasts all the time. All right. So last week we left off in Matthew chapter 11. And tonight we're picking up in Matthew 18. Spoiler alert. So guys, before starting writing this message, I reread again those seven chapters that have taken place between Taylor's text and our text tonight. I've read them before, but I just read them again and again and again to kind of get the scene in my mind afresh. And I'd encourage you guys to do that too. Just read the chapters that we, we cover and the ones that we can't cover on Tuesdays because we're trying to get through the whole book by Christmas. And guys, throughout those seven chapters, um, I saw Jesus continually teaching crowds countercultural things. I saw Jesus healing diseases and paralysis and normally impossible conditions left and right. Jesus cast out demons who were wrecking people's lives with just a word. He just spoke a word, almost like he's the creator and almost like he's God, because he is. And demons just immediately listened to him and fled. Like, they just went as far away as they could. And people got to be human again instead of dehumanized shells of their former self. And once I got to chapter 18, the main idea and question that really arose in my mind from everything I read was this. Did you know that God has a higher view of our humanity than we do? Did you know that Jesus has a higher view of your humanity and your value than you even do? Guys, God created us. He created you. He created me with incomprehensible worth and dignity and value. It's not something that we got to earn or perform for or check off boxes to be qualified in. It's just something we get to believe and inherit and live out. And as I read those chapters, that thought kept blowing my mind to see how Jesus interacts with people. Jesus cares about elevating our humanity to the dignity that he gave us when he created us and called us his beloved image bearers on the very first pages of the Bible. Genesis 1, 26, 28, we see God set humans in the garden as his image bearers on this planet. Why he chose us like fallible little goofs, I'm going to have to ask him someday because I still don't totally know. Um, but he, he did that. There's so much dignity that I still don't understand that God has imbued us with. It's, it's irrefutable. So many of the things in the culture in Israel in Jesus' day, Matthew's culture, the people that Jesus was ministering to and speaking to and healing and setting free, so many cultural forces just want to dehumanize people. They want to degrade their worth. They want to cause them to doubt and hurt themselves and others. And doesn't our culture do that to us also? Like maybe the, the ways are a little different over the years and the technology and all this changes, but the trend is the same. This world just wants to like dehumanize us and, and make us question our value. When Jesus spoke to people in his day, he straight up pierced through the cloud cover of lies and doubt and fear and undignity that this world just soaked into them. And guys, if we let him, he will speak to us today in our world of electricity and microwaves and influencers and mirrors and ads and he'll pierce through that same layer of doubt and insecurity and fear and pain that covers us too, right? From outside sources and within our own minds. And guys, he'll speak to us as beloved children with dignity and worth that is unquestionably established by the creator of the universe. The same word that speaks things into being, speaks life back into dead people and healing into broken limbs and things into being. He speaks rebuke to demons and they flee. That same God could speak to you. Would you like him to? So as we get going on our section tonight, Matthew 18 through 20, there's so many good things here. I had to cut like half out of my message that, you know, Tim edited, so there's going to be a lot, you know, anyways, there's more that you could ask me about later, Tim. Um, we just got to zoom in on a few of the different vignettes in these three chapters 
to kind of see what are some of the things that Matthew wanted his audience to see about Jesus, and what are some things Jesus wants us to see about himself tonight. So the focus of these chapters is going to be a little bit less on like individual discipleship and more on community life. So when a group of humans come together in faith in Jesus, and we start following Jesus together, like Jesus' 12 homies, disciples, like us in our cores in Chi Alpha, what happens? There's a lot of richness and joy and inside jokes and like, you know, laughter, retreats. And also, we're still kind of human. We're still very human. Um, there can be some strains, right? There can be some tensions, some hurt feelings or tricky moments that come up when a group of imperfect people are trying to follow Jesus together. So in this section tonight, Jesus is going to teach us how do we individuals need to operate in relationships and community with each other. So what do you want to teach us? Let's dive into it. Would you guys start reading with me Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5? At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Did you guys catch this whole thing starts with a question from his disciples? Did you guys know Jesus welcomes your questions? He welcomes our questions. This day, their question was, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I got to tell you, the more you read the Bible, the more you'll notice a lot of people in it are, are very human. They're quite like us. Um, and God is so gracious to meet us in our goofiness and point us to a better way. So their question today is about comparative status in the group of disciples. Like, this comes up over and over, unfortunately, in the biographies about Jesus called the Gospels. Because the disciples are humans like us. So they're basically asking, all right, Jesus, who's the top disciple? Like, did you see me pass out the most, like, loaves and fish on that one picnic day? Like, James was lazy. Like, did you notice? Um, they're, like, mentally elevating themselves above each other, probably thinking about themselves according to our world standards of leadership, success, and job performance. How does Jesus answer their question? Verse 2. To their shock and possibly horror, Jesus called a little child to him, placed the kid in the middle of the gaggle of disciples, and says, guys, I'm telling you, unless you change and become like this little kid, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in my kingdom. Taylor's analogy last week in his message was so good. It, it really is like that scene of Gandalf marveling at the hobbits, like they're goofy, innocent little guys, and, and the, as the hope for destroying the one ring. Jesus is presenting this child as a model of true discipleship, as a model for how we treat each other. The disciples are focused, their minds are on status, like who's the greatest? Is it me? Like, am I better than this guy? They're mentally knocking each other down so they can feel better about themselves. What a mood, right? Jesus' instruction to become like little kids means just throw out that whole mental scale you have going on. If you want a social hierarchy, I'll give you one. Accept the position of being like the lowest, like a kid in that society who's like the lowest of authority, decision-making. Those kids are like totally subject to, on adults, like for, you know, authority. They're totally dependent on adults. Jesus turns their misplaced focus upside down and says, you guys are starting from the wrong end. Uh, one commentary I read puts it this way. Their grown-up sense of social position puts them out of sympathy with God's value scale. So who is the greatest in Jesus' kingdom? The lowest is the greatest. The least is the greatest. The littlest is the greatest. Guys, let me just say it clearly again. 
Jesus' kingdom feels upside down a lot of times. But I really think it's because our world is the one that's actually upside down. Our world's gotten really off track of God's original design. It's gotten wrecked by sin and evil and corruption in so many ways that when Jesus comes along and reminds us of God's good, original, created intent, it feels foreign to us, right? In our world, back in in Matthew's day and still today, right? Power and status and authoritative leadership are like the goals. Success is defined in certain ways. Leadership is defined in certain ways. But Jesus shows us God's culture is so different from that and so much better. This moment in Matthew takes my brain to a moment in John's biography about Jesus called the book of John. It's three books to the right of Matthew, if you guys this way, in the Bible. And in John chapter 13, Jesus like powerfully subverted their earthly assumptions about leadership and status and authority by doing something crazy. He washed the disciples' dirty, nasty, stinky feet, which is the something that only the lowest like servant of the household would do. That was a ridiculous action that he did. He's trying to show them like such a radical inversion of their natural assumptions about leadership that shock tactics are needed. He's being dramatic for a reason. Our world is upside down. Jesus is trying to show us the way that is so much better. God's kingdom belongs to all who are lowly, who see themselves accurately and are therefore very humble. We all got to realize our need and dependence on Jesus to save us, transform us, make us new from the inside out. Commentary also said there are no great ones in the kingdom of God. There's no like varsity and JV and like C team or whatever your high school had. There's no like first class and business class and coach and like standby, you know? (laughs) We're all just like the little ones. We all enter his kingdom humble like little kids. And we don't graduate from the foot of the cross. We don't like level up from needing Jesus every single day as our savior. Every day we stay dependent on his goodness and grace for us and we breathe worship back as a reflex to him. We all matter equally to God and we all have a responsibility to care for each other compassionately. There's no ladder to climb or people to climb over to hustle to Jesus or something. There's just getting changed by his love more every single day and changing this world by that love. It's, it's, this year is 30 years for me of following Jesus. It, it, guys, it never gets boring. It never gets old and we get to do this together. So let's keep reading the story and then pick up in uh, Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14. This next section is called The Wandering Sheep. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, Truly, I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. This is such a beautiful and powerful story. And this section just underlines how every single one of us, every single little one matters to God and should also matter to us as followers of Jesus. One matters just as much as the many. A wandering sheep is just a hilarious and powerful image to use, right? I grew up in Redmond. I'm not exactly like a farmer. Um, You know, I'm just not. Um, But I've heard that sheep are not like the brightest little crayons in the crayon box. I've heard that they are not the alpha little, you know, creatures in the pasture. They're just fluffy little goose. I mean, they even look ridiculous. No offense. They're cute. But like, they're just so vulnerable. They they just need their shepherd so much um, to meet their basic needs and to stay out of danger and like off of cliffs and ridiculous things. And I think this image reminds the disciples just how vulnerable they are and how vulnerable we are. But it also reassures them and us 
We got a shepherd and a father in heaven who cares for us so, so much. Friends, God cares about every single person, regardless of their intelligence, appearance, past, present, baggage, anything. If you have never heard that before, that God cares about you as you presently are, I want you to hear that. He thinks of you with the same heart as this shepherd. That's why he's telling the story. Who went looking for the one sheep that wandered away from the 99 who were just chilling. He values you that much. And for us who are his, like, the followers who are kind of the 99 chilling ones, like, we got to care in that same exact way about every single person, no matter how our worldly culture thinks about them. Um, our hearts aren't supposed to be with our culture. They're supposed to be with our Father's heart. Our shepherd takes effort to personally find every lost sheep. He doesn't, like, hire somebody, you know, like, to do it like a task grab or whatever those things are. Like, he goes out personally to find every lost sheep. He pursues each lost one because they matter to him and he loves them. What does he do when he finds his lost sheep? Look again. Does he scold it? Does he impatiently, like, scoff, hold them at a distance, or put them on blast, or be like, well, you're back, finally. But then he's, like, still going to be, like, you know, holding them in, like, time out for, like, a week, or, you know, withholding love or things from them. Things that maybe some of our families have done, or we've experienced that, those types of trends before. Does he call them a foolish, idiot sheep for wandering off? That's not what he does. He sees that lost sheep, his face is full of pure joy. He's so delighted to find that sheep that he loves. He gives all of his love to that sheep right away. And he joyfully carries it back home with the rest of the flock. He doesn't shame or lecture. He adores and he carries. And if you didn't know that that's how Jesus would treat you if you want to come towards him and start seeking him, I'm just telling you, this is what he says to us about himself. If you're somebody who's not part of God's sheepfold, to use the analogy, if you're not part of his family, this is how he cares about you, not just like everyone else, you also. And for any of us who have, have been following him, we're part of that sheepfold, like those 99, this is how we're called to be today on this campus. Not people who judge or scorn or like treat people coldly or be like, here's a standard, once you meet it, then I'll like be nice to you. That's not how our shepherd acts. Sorry, I got really loud. But it's like, that's not how he acts. We got to love everybody just like Jesus loves, which is unreservedly, full of grace, seeing each person, loving each person, whether they're in this room or outside on this campus, not thinking of ourselves as higher or better, but personally loving every single little one, just like our shepherd does. Is there anyone that Jesus wants to transform your mind and your heart about? Could be one person, could be a group on campus that you don't totally understand or fit in with, could be somebody you've been withholding love from or judging or thinking of yourself as better than. I'm not, I don't have anything specific in mind. They're just, we're humans, and sometimes these things happen. If this is true for you, would you just let this shepherd invade your heart and transform your thinking about that person or that group tonight? Guys, God cares about us and invites us in with such high dignity. We also care about others and invite them in. We're going to keep seeing what Jesus wants to teach us here in the next vignette, which is um, chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. This one is about handling conflict with other believers. I'm going to read this one. If your brother or sister sins, go out and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter could be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Truly, I tell you, 
Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. So this section, Jesus is talking about conflict. How do we deal with a personal offense when another little sheepy, another follower of Jesus, does something that hurts us? Well, to see the kind of contracts that Jesus is painting here, let's start with this question. How does our culture handle these types of things? Um, I'm honestly probably out of touch with the current style trends. I don't have, like, the TikTok, you know, or things like that. Um, but I feel like there's things that I hear, like putting people on blast or gossiping to other people or being passive-aggressive. I know about that one. Or, like, making people pay socially or just cutting them down with your words. Those are just a few ways that our culture deals with personal hurt, right? Tell me later if I miss anything because, you know, I'm always learning. Basically, it's everything but what Jesus is calling us to right here, right? <laughs> he says, go to the person directly. Communicate clearly about whatever the hurt was. Um, don't go to everybody else around them and burn their reputation to the ground along the way. Whoops. He says, that's upside down. This is the right way he wants us to handle things. Jesus is telling us how to handle conflicts. Go to the person directly. Speak clearly about what happened and, and how you felt. Here's the key again. You shouldn't have talked to anybody else about it by this point. Just the person directly involved. Maybe processing with a mentor if you need help really figuring it out. But usually, like if somebody in core or a roommate or a friend does something that hurts you, you should talk to that person directly. So I'm just laying out these pro tips. We, we teach about conflict every couple of years. It's always helpful. Um, a lot of us haven't experienced it in our families in a, a good way. So I'm just going to lay out some pro tips that might feel basic. If you ever have a situation like this, you can just share what happened and how you felt hurt or affected by it. Be honest about what happened and use non-weaponized but like true, honest words. Like, when you did this, I felt this. Or when you said this, it hurt me in this way. Or if they're in some kind of sin, you can express your concern in like a kind but not judgmental or like weaponized, just a clear and loving way. Guys, I have to admit, this is still hard for me. If somebody, like a husband, maybe like criticizes me or says I hurt them, I instinctively have justifications and barriers fly up before I even notice it. I'm starting to like jump on like fact checking, like, well, I didn't actually say that. Like, let's get the facts straight here, homie. Um, I am still working on making empathy my default, not fact checking my default. Um, guys, empathy in these situations and just in general in life probably is key. We need to pause our justice train and mentally put ourselves in that other person's shoes. I, I have to do this, like, okay, they're saying that they are hurt. They're saying that when I said this, even if I didn't totally say that, they're saying that when I said this, I really hurt them. Pause, focusing on my version of reality, what I experienced, suspend that for a second, what would it be like if I were them? And Jesus is saying, hopefully the goal of this is you guys will apologize and make things right, and, and the other person will see the wrong and apologize. Let me tell you just a couple tips about what an apology is not and what an apology is and what forgiveness is not what forgiveness is because this comes up sometimes in life. An apology is not like, oh, sorry if you felt hurt when I blah, blah, blah. But it's like, oh, man, I can understand how that would feel so painful if I were you. I am so sorry that I hurt you. And forgiveness is not, it's okay, no worries. A lot of things are not okay. If they were okay, they probably wouldn't have hurt, right? Um, we don't always need to, if you bump into somebody in the doorway, you can say, oh, it's okay, no worries. That's, you know, that's totally fine. You don't have to have a whole, whole big thing. But, like, if a friend hurts you and they apologize to you, like, face to face, look at them and say, I forgive you. I forgive you. Agreed. I forgive you. And that's, like, to me, that's, like, saying I release all sense of wrongdoing. I'm, like, not going to hold a grudge for, like, 10 years. 
I'm not going to like punish you for it in all these like little subtle ways. I'm not going to say I forgive you, but then bring this back up as ammo five to five minutes to five years later, whenever it's convenient for me. When I forgive you, I, I release all power over the past and the future about this, okay? I forgive you. We're like, good. We're restored. Isn't that how God forgives us? If he forgives us completely, this is how we can forgive each other. That's a whole another section this, that we just had to skip over. Um, but that's a spoiler alert. Um, we forgive each other f- fully. Hopefully, if you're ever in this situation, you guys will have like clear, honest words, show empathy, apologize, forgive each other, and be reconciled. Most times I've been in this process, I've seen it go that way, way better than my overthinking, worst-case scenario brain goes. Anybody else have a pro overthinking brain? Yep, I know you're overthinking that right now. But anyways, <laughs> if for some reason it doesn't go like that, Matthew 18 says, okay, the next step is, then you could bring in one other person to help you out, not to, like, gang up on them, but, like, getting help so they can hear, like, what you guys are both saying. And, like, am I crazy? Like, is this, is this what they're saying? Guys, the principle Jesus is setting out is a principle of minimal exposure, that's the opposite of our culture's maximum exposure, cancel culture sort of thing. Like, Jesus is, says, somebody hurts me. I'm remembering. I'm a human with incredible inherent dignity and worth established by the same God who established their worth and dignity. They're a human. They're my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ. I'm not better than them or elevated. Any of those feelings are just a lie. And that's why I'm not going to share my hurt with, like, 50 other people um, who that are going to see that person in the worst light forever. <laughs> Um, I'm not going to, I'm going to minimize any damage to their reputation by just talking to them directly. Does that make sense? O- other people only get brought in if that doesn't work for the one-on-one conversation. Um, just to speak to the far extreme, this doesn't, Jesus isn't saying have no boundaries and be a doormat, okay? Jesus is outlining this process partially because you have self-worth and dignity that's worth protecting too, and the other person does also. So I don't think it's full forgiveness means you go back to like an abusive person or whatever. There's still wisdom involved. But the saying is powerful that says, Forgiveness sets a prisoner free, and that prisoner is yourself. When we don't forgive somebody, we think we're keeping them under the boot of our punishment and wrath forever. But really, we're taking up a whole lot of valuable processing power in our own lives. If I use that right, Tony, I don't know, you know, computer science people. We like, we're like putting part of ourselves in prison, just keeping them in prison, right? That's just not worth it. God's way of forgiving and making things right sets both parties free. It's, and the hope is you're going to be like gaining a brother or sister back. It's just as good as gaining a lost sheep back. They're responsible for their end. You're responsible for your end. But this is the path that Jesus asked us to take in his family. Does that make sense? All right. So we are going to, like, just immediately flip over to chapter 20. We had to skip 19. There's so much good stuff. But in chapter 20, you're picking it up in uh, verses 17 through 19. This is when Jesus predicts his death for the third time. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 disciples aside and t- said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, in case you didn't notice. I'm kidding. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. This section doesn't exactly fit with the theme of everything else I was talking about, but I didn't want us to skip over it, because I think we've skipped over the other two times that Jesus predicted his death in in the book of Matthew. And I just want to make sure everybody was aware that, like, he, he was very clear about what his plan was. Um, Jesus predicted his death publicly multiple times, that he knew the order of events in his life. He knew his main quest, like his mission of coming to earth as God in a bod. He knew he was going to die for us. That wasn't a surprise or like a whoops, you know, I made a misstep there, like start over. Like um, He knew he was going to be handed over to be mocked and flogged and accused of false stuff 
and brutally beaten and hung on a cross to be suffocated to death that he did not deserve. None of that was a whoops or a surprise or a failure for Jesus. Um, that was his main quest when he came to earth, and he willingly chose that for us, lost sheep. Um, and he predicted that after dying on the third day, he'd be raised to life again. And I just didn't want to skip over this incredible roadmap of where Jesus knew from the very beginning where his life was heading, where his ministry and his purpose on earth were culminating towards in his death and his resurrection. Um, right after this section, and, and we're going to read verses 20 through 28. This is about a mother's request for greatness, whoops, and Jesus' servant-hearted kingdom. I know we're flying, guys. <laughs> I just want to cover as much as we can. So, um, Oh, this section I'm not actually going to read. I was just going to summarize. Haha. <laughs> See my note there. So these verses show James and John's mommy. Mommy dearest comes and asks Jesus for a favor, and her, son, her sons will get to sit directly next to him on his right and his left when he's, like, enthroned as king. Jesus has to explain, again, even though nobody can really wrap their minds around it, I'm not coming to Jerusalem to boot out the Roman Empire like this warrior king dude. I'm not going to, like, receive glory and praise and wealth lavished on me on this, like, glorious throne. Um, he is going to a glorious throne of sorts, but he's going to a top of a hill to die a gruesome, lonely death as our king who fights for us so much that he defeats our enemies of sin and death. And he tries explaining it to her. The other disciples get all mad at the power play. Understandable. And Jesus explains his countercultural reality to them again. Verses 25 to 28. Jesus called the 12 guys together and said, you guys know that the rulers of the Gentiles, all the worldly leaders, they lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Hey, like the little least kids and hobbitses. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as me, the son of man, the Messiah, King Jesus, did not come to this earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We've said it many times, but just again, Jesus' kingdom is one of, his culture is, is one of emptying yourself to help others. It's one of humbling yourself to serve others. Jesus' leadership is servant-hearted leadership. So much so that if there was ever a top in a hierarchy, he's the top and he's emptying himself and his life given as a ransom for the little ones who cannot save themselves. His disciples and the crowds back then couldn't save themselves and we today are no better off. We cannot save ourselves and break free of sin and death on our own. We are lowly little sheep. We need Jesus. And he came to die for us and give his life for us. What a good shepherd. The very last part of our message tonight is just going to be how chapter 20 ends. So would you read the last section with me? Verses 29 through 30. It's about two blind men who received their sight. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. This is such a beautiful moment, you guys. This is such a beautiful story. Jesus is so different from anybody else, right? His heart and power and mercy are unmatched. They're otherworldly to us. This story keeps illustrating how chapter 18 began, the very start. Jesus' kingdom is for everyone. He invites the lowliest, the richest, the youngest, the oldest, everybody to join his family to follow him and receive eternal life by following him and leaving God's culture now and forever. Did you notice the question Jesus asked these guys? What do you want me to do for you? 
He doesn't assume what they want. He gives them the dignity by asking them what they want. Their, their culture, their people that they've grown up with, they won't even like treat them as humans. They're just like shove you to the side, hope for a couple coins to like get you through another couple years. Like Jesus doesn't just throw money at them to shut up their, their inconvenient shouting. He honored their inherent dignity and humanity by stopping, looking straight at them and asking them, what would you like me to do for you? Can you imagine what it would be like to be those dudes in that moment? Rejected and marginalized and stripped of dignity from your society, shoved to the side to beg, told to stay out of the way, shut up. Then the Messiah comes and personally interacts with you. The creator of everything invites you to share your request. Well, they stated their plea and their need to be compassionate to the compassionate king, and Jesus had compassion on them. He reached out and touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight. And I hope they received their dignity, too, in the eyes of the crowd that had stripped them of that a long time ago. So as the worship team comes up, I want you, us to all consider tonight, what if Jesus asked you that question tonight? What do you want me to do for you? What would you honestly say? This is Jesus. There's so much more about him to, to keep learning, too. But this is the kind of character this king has, this servant king who would die for us. This is the kind of posture he has for people inside his sheepfold and outside his sheepfold. He, he heals us, and he eventually died a gruesome death because he loves us, you and me, that much. Guys, he really, really loves you. He's compassionate towards you. He sees your dignity and wants to polish it back off and pierce the lies that our culture has covered you up with. Do you believe that Matthew, that he is as good as Matthew realized he was? Do you see Jesus as, as good as these two blind men discovered him to be on that day? If so, what are you going to do about a king, a god, a shepherd who loves you that much that he would die for you? Will you invite him to show you who he is tonight? As we close, I'd like you guys to think about one of these application questions um, on the screen behind me. I'll read them out for us. Um, we can just kind of journal and think about them, and in a couple of songs, we'll have a time of like processing and praying for each other if we want to do that. Um, first question is, how does my view of my self-worth or dignity compare to God's view of it? What is Jesus saying to me through the wandering sheep story, the 99 and the one he went to personally find? What do I need to change about my practice of conflict resolution? Or is there somebody that you need to actually go do that with, um, the Matthew 18, 15 style of resolving conflicts? Last question is, what do you admire about the kind of servant-hearted leader that Jesus is? I'll pray to close us. King Jesus, um, I just still, this many years later, just don't have the words um, to express how glorious and incredible and countercultural you are. And I love that you're countercultural because this culture has a long way to go. Um, and, and you are so, so good. You're so gracious. Thank you for pursuing me um, when you first found me as a little sheepy and then like all the times that I'm dumb and you come and save me again. Thank you for, for helping us have this culture as a community that's so different from the world's culture and how groups treat each other. Help us be... Um, shepherds alongside of you on this campus. Help us, our hearts beat with yours and how we see people and how we treat people. Help us see everybody else's inherent dignity and, and honor that in every way we treat them. Please speak to us tonight and change us, King Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.